Last Lord's Day, I brought you a message entitled, The Inspiration and Infallibility of Scripture. It was actually a topical sermon on the subject of the inspiration of God's Word. And something of an interruption in our preaching series through the book of 1 Peter, uh, chosen because of the unpredictability of the weather and the uh, concern that there might be a very small number of our regular attenders here. As it turned out, that was not the case, and we're thankful for that. But though it may have seemed to be something of an interruption to our series in First Peter, in another way of looking at it, it's really more of an introduction to our sermon for today, the text of which is First Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. And the title of my sermon today is How God Speaks to Men. How God Speaks to Men. Now, if you are sharp in your memory, you may realize that this text for today constitutes the same three verses that were our text on January 13, when we preached from these verses a remedy for discouraged saints. And in that message, we learned that if you are a born-again child of God, you are, number one, an heir of an accomplished salvation, number two, recipients of new covenant fulfillments, and number three, objects of intense angelic interest. But we come back to these very same three verses today to see something else, very different from what we looked at before, which shows us something of the breadth and the depth of God's Word. And today's message, How God Speaks to Men, builds upon last Sunday's sermon on the inspiration and infallibility of Scripture. And what we see in our text today is the work of the Holy Spirit in divine communication. And we shall approach it by these three divisions. Number one, the Spirit of Christ. Number two, the Spirit of the Prophets. And number three, the Spirit of the Evangelists. First of all, the Spirit of Christ. We read in verse 10 of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, who was in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which angels desire to look into. And we find in verse 11 this term, Spirit of Christ, which is not a very common term in the Word of God. And the question is, who is this Spirit of Christ? To what does that refer? Is this the Spirit of who speaks about Christ, and indeed it is, that is true, but it is more than that, as we shall see. The only other time when the same phrase is used, it is used in Romans chapter 8 and verse 9. And there we read, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And in that verse, you can see that the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ are one and the same. 
If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if you would back up into the context of Romans 8, 9, you would find other references that make it very clear that when Paul uses that term, Spirit of Christ, he's talking about the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of God. And so this is more than the Spirit who speaks about Christ. When Peter talks about the Spirit of Christ who was in them, that is the Old Testament prophets, he's talking about the Spirit who belongs to Christ, the Spirit who is bestowed by Christ, who sends His Spirit to do His work. Indeed, he is talking about the Spirit who is Christ. And that, of course, takes us into that eternal mystery of the Trinity, or the triune Godhead, which might be a better term. And we realize that the Spirit of Christ is a reference to the third member of the triune Godhead. Now, right away, we have some implications from considering the Spirit of Christ and what that term means. It tells us, first of all, that the three members of the triune Godhead work in perfect harmony. We see that in our text for today. One God, three persons, mystery of mysteries. Three persons with different functions, but all with one purpose, all working in perfect harmony together to accomplish the same divine will. Furthermore, we learn that Christ was active in the Old Testament before his incarnation in Bethlehem. And we find various references to that in the Old Testament. And some of them are references to the angel of the Lord, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. But some of them are references to the Spirit of Christ at work, as we have here. Christ's Spirit working in the lives of God's people long before Christ was born in Bethlehem. And we learn, therefore, that Christ was involved in preparing the way for his own incarnation. The things that were necessary to prepare the stage, as it were, for the coming of Christ in the fullness of time were worked out ahead of time by Christ himself, Christ who is the Spirit of God working And we learn beyond that that Christ was involved in prophesying about his coming incarnation. Christ himself was giving to the prophets words that told that he would come someday. Christ is very much active in the Old Testament. He is not a newcomer on the scene when he is born to Mary in the New Testament era. The Spirit of Christ. But we move secondly to the Spirit of the Prophets. And we learn how the Spirit of Christ related to the prophets. And we begin by asking, who were the prophets? What does that term mean when it says in verse 10, Of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you? Who are these prophets? The Greek word that is rendered prophets here is a word that means speaking forth. Or speaking openly. Some scholars think that the term also contains in it the idea of speaking in advance. The future prophetic idea of prophecy. But not all scholars are agreed with that. And whether the word has any con- 
text or any connotation of speaking in advance or not, it is clear that in the general usage of that word in both the Old and the New Testament, it has more the idea of a spokesman, a mouthpiece, someone who speaks divine revelation, some of which will be predictions about the future, but other parts of that revelation are not necessarily prophecy in the way that we normally use that term, because when we use that term, we're normally talking about predictions about future events. A prophet, therefore, is a spokesman selected by God to communicate divinely inspired revelation to men. We saw that last Sunday, didn't we? Remember how Aaron was a prophet to Moses. He was a spokesman of Moses. He became Moses' mouthpiece to Pharaoh and to the people of Israel. And in that way, the prophets of God are spokesmen for God. God speaks to the prophet. The prophet speaks to men. That's what a prophet is. But a second question arises out of our text, and that is the question, where was the Spirit of Christ in relationship to the prophets? And this arises from that phrase, of this salvation the prophets have inquired and searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them, in them, was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. Now, the question of the location of the Spirit of God in relationship to the prophets would not even arise, except that there is a common teaching that Old Testament saints did not have the Spirit of God within them, that only New Testament saints are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that in the Old Testament the Spirit of God came upon men, but he did not necessarily dwell in them. But this text says otherwise. It tells us that the Old Testament's prophets had the Spirit of Christ in them. The prophet, the Spirit of Christ was already within them. Operating, working, revealing certain things to them. Yes, it is true that sometimes in the Old Testament we find references to the Spirit of Christ coming upon someone. Many, many times you can find that. The Spirit of God came upon Samson and gave him ability to do uh, those mighty deeds of, of physical strength which he did. But this text in Peter questions the idea that the Old Testament saints were not indwelt by the Spirit of God. When the Spirit of God came upon someone, that evidently was an endowment for special Work, special service, special activity, special operation. And indeed, the Holy Spirit may come upon New Testament saints in a similar way. But that doesn't mean that he's not already indwelling New Testament saints. And the Spirit of Christ coming upon Old Testament prophets doesn't mean that he was not already indwelling them. Indeed, this text indicates that he was. But more importantly to all of this is the question, what did the Spirit of Christ do with the prophets? What are the operations of the Spirit of Christ upon the prophets? And to answer that question, we begin by examining the language that is used. 
The Spirit of Christ was indicating, verse 11. The Spirit of Christ testified beforehand, verse 11. The Spirit of Christ revealed, verse 12. The Spirit of Christ was indicating, verse 11. Searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified, there's another phrase, testified beforehand, the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And then in verse 12, to them it was revealed. That not to themselves, but to us they were ministering. The Spirit of Christ was indicating. The Spirit of Christ was pointing. This is in the imperative tense and speaks of a series of successive disclosures. The Spirit of Christ indicated something to the prophets. And then later he indicated something more to the prophets. And later he indicated something more to the prophets. And this would be both individually and collectively. The Spirit of Christ indicated something to this individual prophet. And then later indicated something more to that particular prophet. But of course that prophet passed off the scene. And then another prophet came on the scene. And the Holy Spirit of Christ indicated something more to that prophet. Which builds upon what was already revealed to the previous prophet. This speaks of the process of progressive revelation as we call it in theology books today. That God has revealed his will to us, his word to us, in a progressive manner. A little bit here, a little more here, a little more here, a little more here. Line upon line, precept upon precept, until finally the entire revelation that God intended to give was given. And special revelation ceased. The canon of scripture was closed. God stopped speaking his Word through the prophets in this manner. But this tells us something of the operation of the Spirit of God within the prophets. He was revealing the Word of God. He was revealing knowledge given by God, line upon line, precept upon precept, a little bit at a time in successive disclosures. And then there's that phrase, testified beforehand, and that has the idea of predicted. In fact, one of the translations translates that predicted. The Spirit of Christ testified beforehand. The Spirit of Christ predicted of the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And so we have both prophecy which is imparting information as well as prophecy which is predicting future events. And then that word revealed in verse 12. The Spirit To them it was revealed, that not to themselves. And that is a word that is never used in the Bible of human communication, always of God speaking. It was revealed to them. God revealed something to these men. God revealed himself. God revealed knowledge. God revealed his will to these men, divine revelation. And so the conclusions we draw from the language that is used is that the Holy Spirit operated the prophets in the following way. Number one, he imparted information to them. Number two, he predicted future events beyond them. Number three, he granted clarification to them. 
They were searching the scriptures to understand it better. And so to them it was revealed that, not to themselves, but to us they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And so he granted clarification to the prophets to better understand the word of God, to better understand their own prophecies. But it is apparent in all of this that even the Old Testament prophets themselves were not given all details concerning the coming of Christ. They weren't even given many details concerning the comings of Christ. They wanted to know a whole lot more than they were allowed to know. They wanted to understand something about the time and the circumstances. The Spirit of Christ which was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. They wanted to know more about this suffering Messiah. They wanted to know more about this glorified Messiah. They were having trouble putting all of these things together. When will this happen? Who will this person be? When will he come? What will he be like? How will we know him? What are these sufferings? What is this glory? And basically what the Spirit of God said to them was, don't be too concerned about that because this is not for you and for your time. This is for those who come later. They were not given all the details. They were not given many details. And the prophecy which was given was not given that they might understand the details of future events. This makes that very clear. Even the very prophets to whom it was given, much less others who read it after them, were not supposed to understand the details. Now that's important because in connection with the second coming of Christ, we are sometimes told God wouldn't have put these prophetic statements in Scripture if he didn't want us to understand the details. That contradicts That contradicts what the Bible reveals about the first advent of Christ. We are to be patient and not insist upon understanding all the details. We should want to know all that we can understand, but we should not assume that we understand more that is given. We should not build imaginary houses upon flimsy evidence in order to supply details which are not given to us. We must be willing to accept both what is revealed and the silence that God has imparted in regard to these future events. But there's a fourth operation of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these prophets. He not only imparted information, predicted future events, and granted some clarifications to them, but he, number four, created a desire within them to understand Scripture. Of this salvation, the prophets have inquired... And searched carefully, who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that would follow. He created within these prophets an intense desire to understand Scripture. They searched and they inquired. Two different words. Both words of intense action. The words are largely synonymous. If there's any distinction between them, the first is a little more general, the second perhaps more specific. 
The first word searched means diligently seeking. It is a word that is used quite often in both the Old Testament Greek translation, the Septuagint, as well as the New Testament. And it is used often of the seeking God or searching the scriptures. Those who are seeking God search with this very word that is used. Those who are studying the scriptures search the scriptures with this Greek word that Peter uses. The word inquired, however, is not used elsewhere in the, in the Bible. But it is fairly common. Well, it is used in the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. And it is a fairly common word in secular Greek. And that has the idea of searching through something. Searching through a house. Searching through a city. Searching through a country. Looking for someone. Looking for something. Searching through something. And it is used in the Septuagint of the Old Testament of searching the scriptures. Searching through the scriptures to try to find something in particular. Every student of scripture has done that. We have tools to help us do that. Concordances and other tools to help us search through the scriptures to find that particular item that we have a, an interest in at the moment. And so inquired doesn't necessarily mean asking questions, which is what the English word communicates to us, though that could be involved. But it's the idea of searching intently, searching thoroughly, searching actively with the greatest of interest. Daniel is an example of what these prophets did. We read it earlier. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. And here we find Daniel, who himself is a prophet, an inspired writer of Scripture, searching the writings of Jeremiah to understand better what God is doing in his day. And that's the idea here. The prophets searched the Scriptures, both their own writings as well as the writings of other Scriptures, in order to understand more about the prophesied Christ. Who is he? How will we know him? When is he coming? How will he suffer? In what way will he be glorified? These questions that intrigued them, they searched the scriptures in order to find the answers to those questions, and it was the Spirit of God who gave them that desire. We're talking about the operations of the Spirit of God upon the prophets. The Spirit of God gave them that intense desire. The prophets were not merely passive instruments, but they were highly interested students in the Word of God. Thereby we learn that diligent, serious Bible study honors God. God is pleased when we treat His Word as valuable. God is pleased when we treat the Bible as if it is the Word of the living God. God is pleased when we search His Scriptures carefully, believing that every word contains highly valuable divine revelation. God is pleased when we are intense students of the Bible. But all of this also gives us some very important implications regarding the inspiration of Scripture. It is obvious from this text, is it not, that these prophets were conscious 
of their divine inspiration. How do you know that? Well, because, number one, they didn't fully understand what they wrote. How many of us could write things that we don't understand? Or how many of us would write things that we don't understand? Writing generally is writing out of your own understanding and experience. You don't write things that you don't understand. How, how would you even know how to write things that you don't understand? You have to understand something in order to write it down. But they knew that they had written things which they themselves did not understand. They knew, therefore, that the source of what they wrote was not from their own minds. It did not arise from their own hearts. As Peter says elsewhere, the prophecy of the Scripture, knowing that the prophecy of the Scripture is of no private origination, private derivation, But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. These prophets give evidence that that's exactly what they believed. That's what they understood. They did not fully understand what they wrote. They knew their prophecies did not come from themselves. They knew that those prophecies came from somewhere else. And they fully believed that those prophecies came from the Spirit of the living God. And therefore they believed that study could improve their understanding of the very own scriptures which they wrote. That is a powerful testimony for the inspiration of Scripture. But now we move thirdly to the spirit of the evangelists. We're talking about how God speaks to men. And we see that God speaks to men in the prophetic voice. As we see how the Spirit operated upon the prophets. But there's another operation of the Spirit of God in our text, which is not the same as the prophetic operation. It is found in verse 12. To them it was revealed that not to themselves, but to us, they were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And what do we have here? We have now the spirit of the evangelists, as opposed to the spirit of the prophets. It's the same spirit, but a different, a different operation. The spirit of the prophets operated in one way to communicate the word of God, divine revelation given, the Bible as it has come to us. The spirit of God operated in the evangelists in a different way. And who are these These men that I call evangelists, that Peter identifies with the phrase, those who have preached the gospel to you. They were ministering the things which now have been reported to you through those who have preached the gospel to you. Those are the people that I'm interested in now. Who are these people who have preached the gospel to you? You may recall that in Ephesians chapter 4, The Apostle Paul identifies four categories of messengers that God has raised up in the New Testament era to communicate to his people. They are given in Ephesians chapter 4 as gifts of the ascended Christ. And he himself gave some to be apostles, and some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Four categories. Apostles, we understand who they were. Prophets are men who also were inspired to give Scripture, like the apostles were. So there are two categories here that are 
inspired men whose ministry was very similar to the Old Testament prophets that we saw in verses 10 and 11. The Spirit of God ministered through the apostles and prophets in the New Testament era in the same way that he ministered through the prophets in the Old Testament era. But we also have evangelists and pastor-teachers. And they are not men who speak divine revelation. They are not men who speak with the prophetic voice in the, in the way that we have described it and defined it here. But they are men, nevertheless, who declare the word of God and do so in an effective and powerful way. And of these four categories of gifted messengers, it would seem that Peter is thinking primarily of category number three in our text in 1 Peter 1.12. Those who have preached the gospel to you are no doubt the evangelist of Ephesians 4.11. In fact, that phrase can be translated, those who evangelized you. Those who preached the gospel to you could be translated, those who evangelized you. Evidently, Peter's not thinking of himself. Those who evangelized you, not we who evangelized you. Peter was an apostle and also had the gift of prophecy. But he's thinking about evangelists. You say, who would be an example of that in the Bible? Timothy, Titus, men who had an itinerant ministry, men who were sent out to proclaim the word of God. They were assigned to this place for a while, another place for a while. They moved around. That's one of the features of an evangelist as opposed to a pastor-teacher who has a settled ministry in one congregation. But the evangelist moved around, planted churches, established churches. And Peter evidently has that category in mind. His readers in northern Turkey, we don't know who it was who first evangelized them and planted their churches, but evidently they had received the blessed ministry of some evangelist who had preached the gospel unto them. And so what is the function of these evangelists? Well, it is to preach the gospel to you, to proclaim the gospel. And we would take it from the rest of our text. It is to explain the true meaning of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. Many of the Jews did not understand the true meaning of their own prophecies regarding the Messiah, and therefore they rejected Jesus as the Christ because they didn't think that he fit into their, their prophetic scriptures. They were wrong. They were blind. They were foolish. And therefore, the New Testament preachers, whether apostles or prophets or evangelists or pastor teachers, seem to spend a great deal of their time trying to show people why Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, how he fits those prophecies perfectly. He is the Christ. And that's what these evangelists did who came to Peter's readers. In other words, they preached the Old Testament scriptures with New Testament understanding. They preached the Old Testament scriptures because that's all they had. The New Testament wasn't written yet. But they preached the Old Testament scriptures with New Testament understanding. 
and explained them. They, could I use a word here that we use around here a lot? They exposited the Old Testament scriptures. They took a text and explained what it means. And explained what it means in the light of New Testament revelation. Explained what it means in the light of the coming of Christ. They were expositing the Old Testament scriptures. Well, that's their identity and their function, but what made them effective? Where did they get their power? Well, our text tells us. Those who preach the gospel to you by what? By the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Another reason why we know the Spirit of Christ in the previous verse is the same as the Holy Spirit, because the words are used basically interchangeably here. The Spirit of Christ in one verse, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit sent from heaven in another verse, obviously talking about the same one, the operation of God in the same manner. And these evangelists of whom Peter writes were effective in their ministry precisely because the Holy Spirit of God empowered them to do their work. That's what made them effective. Their ability to be effective in their preaching depended upon the Holy Spirit. These evangelists did not give inspired scripture, but anointed exposition. Anointed exposition. It took the Holy Spirit of God to enable them to understand the Old Testament scriptures from a New Testament standpoint. The Holy Spirit had to help them do that. And of course, we've already seen the Holy Spirit does do that. He reveals the meaning of scripture to his servants. And he had to enable their hearers to understand what they were talking about. And he did that too. Or else there wouldn't be anybody for Peter to write to. How did there come to be these Christians, Jew and Gentile, scattered across northern Turkey that Peter is now writing to? How did they come to be followers of Jesus Christ? How did they come to be Christians? By the power of the Holy Spirit, who empowered the evangelists to preach God's word with an effectiveness that impacted the lives of some of their hearers, and brought them by faith through the work of regeneration into the family of God. And so the hearers of these evangelists heard the voice of God when they preached and had an encounter with Jesus Christ when faithful messengers proclaimed God's word. They heard the voice of God in the proclamation of Scripture by evangelists who were not inspired prophets, who were simply empowered by the Holy Spirit to effectively preach the Word of God. They heard the voice of God. They met the Lord Jesus Christ through the preaching of God's Word. And Peter thereby indicates to us that preaching is the vehicle for the most direct and powerful voice of God to men today. God is not inspiring prophets. God is not giving any more divine revelation. God has given us His Word. We have a Bible. It is the Word of God. We can and should study it. And we can search it for ourselves. But 
The word of God comes to us even more powerfully when it is proclaimed to us by messengers who are called and equipped and anointed by God to preach the word of God. That word of God comes to us more clearly and more powerfully even than the word of God which we study for ourselves, though our own private study will actually enable us to hear the proclaimed word with greater power. It helps prepare us for it. And we will learn many things and understand much. And God will speak to us through the private study of God's word. And I'm not trying to diminish that in any sense, but I'm trying to show you what the scripture itself teaches, that there is a special place for the preaching of God's word. And God has chosen to speak most powerfully through that means above any other means that is going on today. No wonder Satan is busy undermining biblical preaching, has been down through the centuries and continues to do such today. No wonder Satan is constantly attacking biblical preachers, those who are, who are endeavoring to preach the word of God faithfully. They are under special assault by our adversary. I hope you pray for such men. I hope you understand what a special target of Satan's assault they are. I hope you understand how critical they are to the work of God in your life and in your family and in your church and in our community and in our country. I hope you understand how critical such men are and pray for them as they are under Satan's assaults. No wonder Satan is busy trying to dilute biblical preaching today to cause preachers to turn to other things, to lose confidence in preaching the word of God and add other things in and thereby dilute biblical preaching. Or there are many other ways to dilute biblical preaching. I heard about a fast-growing church in another state, rapidly growing, in which the preacher preaches an average of 12 minutes per sermon. And a good portion of that 12 minutes is taken up by showing video clips of movies and television programs. How much of God's Word could you possibly get in a 12-minute sermon, several minutes of which is devoted to television clips and movie clips? How much of God's Word can you get in that? Precious little. What a delusion. What a corruption. What an abomination. What a lack of confidence in the Word of God. What a compromise. What deceit. Satan dilutes biblical preaching. Satan attacks biblical churches. The more a church is committed to the word of God, the more you can be certain that Satan is going to attack it. And he has so many arrows in his, his quiver. And he will find weak members and will attack them. He will find strong members and attack them. He will find any chink in the armor he can. He will do anything he can to destroy or to damage a church that is committed to the proclamation of God's word. No wonder Satan works so hard to impede and seduce hearers of God's word, to get God's people to grow weary of hearing Bible preaching, straight expository type preaching, and to go off to some of these new, more exciting venues, these more exciting methods. It's, uh, it's kind of entertaining to watch movie and video clips on a screen, isn't it? If I'm going to have to go to church, I'd rather go to a place that's more exciting, more entertaining. Don't be so stupid. Don't be so foolish. 
What do you need for your soul? What do you need for your spiritual health? What does your family need for its soul, for its spiritual health? How does God speak to us primarily? These are the questions to be asking. And the, the sermon title is How God Speaks to Men. And this tells us how. And so this brings me to make several applications quickly now in closing. The first one is that we need to understand and appreciate the communicating work of God's Holy Spirit. May God help us to understand what the Holy Spirit does in communicating God's truth to men and to appreciate what He does. Number two, this should lead us to understand our dependence upon God's Spirit to understand and profit from Scripture. How utterly dependent we are upon the Holy Spirit of God. We ought to pray every time before we open the Bible. God, by your Spirit, help me to understand what I read and study. I can't understand it apart from your Spirit. We ought to pray every time we come to church. Holy Spirit of God, please help me to understand your Word. I know I can't understand it apart from the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Thirdly, this should help us to better understand biblical evangelism. Biblical evangelism. And biblical evangelism consists primarily of proclaiming and explaining divinely inspired scripture. Biblical evangelism consists of proclaiming and explaining the Bible, the Word of God. You say, I don't know how to witness to somebody. Strike a conversation or let them start it. Many times they will. Find a place where you can insert a Bible verse and explain what that verse means. That's evangelism. In its most powerful form. Very simple. And we must do this or we will find ourselves being proclaimers of another gospel without even realizing it. And bring the anathema of God down upon us. Or we must do this or we will find ourselves proclaiming only a partial gospel. Maybe proclaiming some things that are true, but leaving out other things that are just as true and are just as needed. We need to realize that biblical evangelism is made effective not by human persuasion, not by making people afraid, or not by, by appealing to human needs for love and acceptance. That's not the way that you get people to become followers of Jesus Christ. You proclaim and explain the Word of God dependent upon the Holy Spirit to apply it to their hearts. We are proclaimers of God's Word, not editors of God's Word. God didn't call upon us to cleverly shape the message to make it more effective to the 21st century. God didn't call upon us to find new methods that are more, more effective for 21st century Americans. The method hasn't changed. And the only method that's going to work is the method which God has chosen to use. How clever we are has nothing to do with it. It is whether God chooses to bless it or not. And what is God going to bless? He's going to bless His Word declared the way He has told us to declare it. If He's going to bless anything, He's not obligated to bless anything. The wind blows where it wishes. But if He's going to bless anything, He's going to bless His Word proclaimed in the way He tells us to proclaim it. Nothing else. And so the fourth application is to understand conversion. 
and to realize that the Holy Spirit must attend evangelistic preaching with power if there's going to be conversion. The Holy Spirit must apply the Word of God specifically to individuals who are hearing it if there's going to be conversion. The Holy Spirit must assure God's children of their standing before God after He has regenerated them and brought them into new life. The Holy Spirit must do these things. And so we are dependent upon God. We are dependent upon the Spirit of God. But we are dependent upon a great God, a powerful God, and a gracious God, and a God who has given us His Word. And we have the privilege of following it, obeying it, and thereby pleading for His blessing upon it and expecting that it will receive exactly such blessing. Shall we pray? We bow, O Lord, in the quietness of these closing moments to thank you for the sending of your Spirit, to thank you for the communication of your Word, and to plead, O Lord, that you will open our hearts to an ever fuller understanding of your truth, and to plead, O Lord, that you will open the hearts of those who are outside of Christ to reveal to them the gospel, to reveal to them their sin and need, to reveal to them Christ, and to bring them to Christ by faith. And we ask, O Lord, that you will help us to be faithful to that which you have given, to honor you by believing and obeying and proclaiming your word. O Lord God, help us to do it and bless our efforts with the effective power of your Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.